Amen. Let me encourage you to stay standing for the reading of God's word as we come to 1 Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. And we're going to read down to verse 8 today. We're going to cover half of this next section, part 1 this week, part 2 next. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. Paul writes and says, Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This is the straightforward word of the Lord for this morning. You may be seated. Good morning. We doing all right? Yeah? Good. It's good to see you. Glad you're here. If you have copies of God's Word, why don't you go to 1 Timothy chapter 5? That's where we're going to be this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 5. And let me give a warm welcome not only to those who are here, but those who are joining us online. Get your Bibles out. We're going to go to 1 Timothy 5 uh, with you as well, and we're going to get into this important section of God's Word today. My name is Scott. I'm the lead pastor here at Doxa Church, and it would be a joy to get to meet you if I haven't. If you're new today, welcome. We're in the middle of a verse-by-verse series uh, study through the book of 1 Timothy, and we're in chapter 5 today, and we're just kind of continue on, and uh, chapter 5 is kind of the church's guide to several subjects, and so today is the second of those subjects, and it's this, the title of the message this morning, The Church's Guide to Widow Care, part one. If I say part one, we don't know how many more parts. We just know it's not going to end by today. We're going to get through some of it. There may be part two. There may be part three. But today is part one. Let me just ask you a question. How many have ever heard a Sunday sermon in a church on the text I just read? Raise your hand. I want to know. It's like seven hands that went up. This place seats a lot of people. Why not? Why not? You could be like, well, well, because at our church, uh, where I grew up, uh, we didn't worry about what the Bible said. We just went and did what it said. Well, listen, part of the obedience is to command these things. Right? We just read it. I was just thinking about this. This has broke my heart. Here I come firing out of the gates already. Uh, I've been around the church for like 24 years. How have I never heard a sermon on this section? Is this not cool enough? I'm serious. I mean, is this not relevant enough? How come not one of us, for the vast majority, I would say it's less than 3% of the whole room has heard this, a sermon on this text? 
Here's what I want to say. I just want to be very careful. If there was ever an in time to maybe suggest that there ought to be an indictment on American modern day preaching, it's this. Our responsibility as pastors is to preach and teach the whole counsel of God's word. Okay? Now, I get it. This passage may not come up a lot, right? You're like, well, it's in like a few places, right? Well, yeah, but in 1 Timothy, it gets 14 verses. 14. And you would think at some point in the trajectory of your life at a church that you would eventually get there. And I'm not trying to toot our own hordes. I really don't want that email this week. Well, you always seem better than other churches. And that's not what I'm saying at all. You're missing my heart if you're hearing that. This is heartbreaking to me that our responsibility as pastors is to teach you the whole counsel of God. And I'm just wondering why not? Is it because it's just not that maybe it won't bring you guys back next week? Our mode of advertising has always been to try not to advertise, to just try to do what's next. And the Lord will draw his own as the word is preached in power. Okay, I'm not even, I just. What's so sad about that is that it's, widows are so, what would I say? important to the Lord. You think, where does this come up? Uh, Widows come up all the time in the Bible. Widows have a special place in God's heart, actually. Uh, If you go back all the way, let's just look at the Bible for a second. Uh, Kind of a 30,000-foot overview of widows. Um, When a woman was left without a husband, she became the special care of God. Did you know that? Psalm 68.5 says that God is this, father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God's their protector. You mess with widows, God messes with you. That's Exodus chapter 22, 22 to 24. Remember that section we talked about last week? You're probably there in your Bible reading plan. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Ready for this? This is God's word. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. And I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. That's the word of the Lord. Uncomfortable? That's how serious God takes this. You think, well, maybe it lightens up in the New Testament. Yeah, well, it's interesting in the New Testament because you got Jesus, right? And Jesus is always the calm, you know, part of the Godhead. Laid back and chill. God the Father, real intense. Jesus, whatever, bro. <laughs> and yet, Jesus raises three people from the dead, right? Am I right on that? One of the three of those is a widow's son. Elijah raises someone from the dead. It's a widow's son. Why do you raise a widow's son? Well, that was, for a widow, their hope of survival. Destitution was determined based on whether or not you had someone, some man in your life to take care of you. Jesus, with the widow of Nain, in Luke chapter 7, says that when the Lord saw her, 
He had compassion on her. Guys, to take care of widows, to love widows, is to reveal the heart of God. Our God is into the broken. Our God is particularly near to the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. He is with those who are in these places that widows, for example, are. He had compassion on her such that he raised her child from the dead. It continues on into the early church. You had the foundation of the early church. You had the apostles teaching and, uh, and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers, okay? That was the foundation. That's how it starts. By the way, that's how it starts in a church plant. I remember at the beginning of planting a church, everyone's like, how come all these ministries aren't there? Well, number one, we're a simple church. But number two, because we just started, okay? Apostles teaching, yeah. Fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers, first expansion ministry that the early church had was to who? Widows. They raised up in Acts 6 men full of repute and the spirit and of wisdom. And man, they took care of these widows and made sure they were allotted for properly. Go to Acts chapter 9. Another resurrection. This time, not of a widow's son, but of a widow. Do you remember Tabitha? Or maybe you would remember her from the name Dorcas. Being a public school kid, reading the Bible, I think I was 17 the first time I read the New Testament, yep, cover to cover, and laughed, honestly, a little bit at the name. Like, wow, that's bad. It's kind of like Bunny for a guy in the Old Testament, B-U-N-N-I. You're like, really? How did school go for him, right? <laughs> Tabitha was a widow who apparently was caring for a lot of widows because when she died, there was a slew of widows around and she was making, remember my sewing? She was making a bunch of clothes for other widows. So this widow was taking care of a lot of widows and they hear about Peter's ministry and they ask Peter to come over and Peter comes, he kicks the widows out, no disrespect to the widows, they just, he wasn't about to say, hey, I need you to stop crying so I can focus right now. So he just goes, hey, hang on, just let me, let me do this and, and just a little bit of time, you're going to be doing great. Those tears are going to be for a different reason. And he goes in and says, Tabitha, what? Get up, arise. And Tabitha's raised from the dead. In James chapter 1, verse 27, maybe the clearest statement for Christians about how we should view this and why this is important to preach and why this is important to act on in the church James says this, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Fill in the blank. What would you put in there? I'm not sure if I'm expecting what is there to be there when it says that. And yet it says that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So when you actually think about widows and actually think about widow care, it is everywhere in the Bible. This is not some peripheral thing where you don't ever talk about it. We've got to be talking about it. There's got to be a time where we assess and discuss what it looks like as the church body to take care of widows. And Paul wants Timothy and the church at Ephesus to do it. And I believe by extension he wants us to be involved in understanding our responsibility to widows. 
as I said, this section, which we're going to probably divide into two parts, has 14 verses, giving us a clear guide to how to care for widows, which is kind of the big idea of the passage. This is the church's guide to widow care. Evidently, they weren't doing it great. They're going to figure out from Paul how it ought to be done, and the church ought to go and do it. But what's interesting about my approach today, and I don't do this often, is that my approach to the text is going to approach the verses out of order today. So for those of you who've been around for a while, I can't even name maybe more than one or two times I've ever preached a text out of order because I don't want to confuse you. And what I want more than anything in my preaching as it pertains to you is you to be able to look at your Bible and go, oh, yeah, I see that. I see how he got that. I could go home and do that myself. Yeah, there is power in the word and there is an ability to understand the word. I want you guys to understand the word. And so today, because that's such a dominant focus for me, what I'm going to do is go out of order in the verses to go in order of Paul's argument. Does that make sense? And so by getting Paul's argument, I think you'll actually be able to use the verses in their order more effectively. And so while he starts by saying, honor widows who are truly widows in verse 3, that is not the first line of defense for widow care through the church. If I were to borrow some football terminology with a slight thankfulness in my heart that the game isn't at 10 o'clock today, but at 3.30, you might say that... uh, Family care is the man-to-man first line of defense for the church's care of widows. And that when widows don't have family care, the church plays zone defense for anyone who slips through. That's all the football I'm going to talk about for today, okay? But that's kind of how it works. Yes, you're welcome. Family is... The first line of defense and the church is meant to play zone defense for anyone who gets through, slips through the cracks of family care and provision. So we're going to see that in the text today. Church, if we're going to walk through this, four elements that guide our understanding of widow care. First thing is this. Number one, church, widowed family members are your responsibility. Widowed family members are your responsibility. We'll get back to verse 3. I'll read it in context as I get to verse 4. It says, honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first, you see why I'm going out of order? There's something that needs to be done first, verse 4, to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Here's why this is the first point. It's the first order in Paul's guide to widow care. Let them first, family members, the first line of defense to care and protect widows are the widow's own children or grandchildren. So how many of you are a child of someone? Excellent. Many more hands than my first question. And I'm guessing then by extension that you have some grandparents potentially as well. Not all of you, but some of you. In those cases where you have a parent or a grandparent, verse 5 says it like this, that is left all alone. That's going to be a key running definition for what widows 
are defined as in scripture, those who are left all alone and unable to provide for themselves, you friends with that situation have a command to be godly. Let them first learn to show godliness. Let them first learn is a command, okay? This is a command. Godliness in action starts in the home. So what I mean by that is, when you talk about godliness, you talk about your resume, you, you give us an understanding of what you do, don't first tell people how many people you mentor. Don't first tell people how many ways you serve in the church or serve in the community. I first want to know how you demonstrate godliness at home. We, we already looked at this back in 1 Timothy 3, right? that the foundation for how you truly assess someone's godliness is not in this setting, it's in the home. Because here's the thing, at church, you guys can fake it, at home, your hypocrisy is outed. At church, you can put on a great face, but at home, people really know who you are. He goes, this is important. This is what godliness looks like. This is how it should be displayed. Better yet, don't tell me that you care for people at home, show me your godliness by actually doing it, right? I think of 1 John 3, 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This, friends, pleases God. When a child of a widowed mother or grandmother takes care of and the responsibility for that individual, there is no doubt the first line of defense we have to each hold on to and sense and get is that church individually, each one of you makes up the church and you specifically, individual, have a personal responsibility to care for these in your family. William Barclay said it like this, don't expect public charity to do what private piety should. This is the least we could do. He says, some return we could make to our parents. This is so minimal. This is some small return for them raising you, them investing in you. This is, in some sense, that debt of love having the opportunity to be paid back in some way. This is the caree for most of your life becoming the carer in the later years. This is the acknowledgement that the command of honoring your father and mother doesn't end when you're 18 years old. I think for some reason it's like things change and all of a sudden it's like, well, at 18, honor looks different. It does look different. But you never have a time if your parents are around that you don't have a responsibility to honor them. In some sense, this responsibility is precisely how you fulfill the fifth commandment to honor your father and your mother. And baked into the cake of the natural family dynamics established by God is this, we care for our own. It's built into the natural law. In fact, one philosopher in the first century commenting on these verses and the sense of what's underneath this is the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, says this about storks. Who would have known? When Old storks become unable to fly. This is first century wisdom here. When old storks become unable to fly, they remain in their nests and are fed by their children who go to endless exertions to provide their food because of their piety. 
And of course, the question is, if a bird does it, how much ought we to do it as image bearers of God? Who have you deprived of godliness in your family? Who in your family aren't you reflecting the Lord towards? If the Lord's heart is compassionate and kind, who in your family, because family's hard, right? Especially when you've got like years with sinners under one roof. There are some, there are some dangerous lines in this passage of implication that might indict some of us in the way that we treat our families. Might I suggest some of us have some apologizing to do for the way they've neglected this, the way they've treated their parents and their grandparents. Some of this, like I said, you guys have it baked into the family dynamic that you have. It's baked in kind of naturally the family dynamic established by God, but it isn't necessarily there. God help us be a kind of people that reflect the Lord's heart. Maybe you are doing this, but you're doing it begrudgingly. God, give us a heart that reflects his compassionate heart for the ones in deepest need. (laughs) Evidently, it's serious, right? It's so serious. I'm going to take you from verse 4 to verse 8. So church's guide to widow care starts with you individuals, church members. Widowed family members are your responsibility. But number two, church individuals deny this and you deny the faith. Okay, deny this and you deny the faith. If verse four in the way the passage breaks down is the positive expression of the Christian family member's responsibility, then verse eight is the scare you straight, don't you mess with this addition, right? And so Paul says, but if a woman, a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Verses five to seven describe verse three, what a true widow is, but it comes back. You'll see how this connects to my first point here. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This is one of the strongest statements in the Bible. There's no doubt that this was a pressing need because it was a pressing problem in the church that needed a serious word. The way even Paul describes this, he uses what exegetical grammar nerds would call a first-class conditional statement, first-class condition statement, which is to say the way it's translated It says, but if anyone does not provide, it really should be translated, but since people are not providing, or maybe, but when people do not provide for their relatives, what have you done? You have denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. This isn't talking about hypotheticals. This is talking about fact. That's the idea here. So what was going on in the church? There were some who evidently were not caring for their relatives and providing for them in the way that they, providing for them in the way that they should. So he says, listen, if you're not providing, that word means to think beforehand. There's planning involved. It actually, in and of itself, it doesn't even have a financial implication there, but the the greater 
um, honoring subject in verse 3 is where we kind of get those implications of financial provision. But it means to think beforehand or to take thought to help. And, and this is where it's actually interesting. If anyone doesn't provide for his relatives, you're like, is that like extended family? In the original, it actually says, but when anyone does not provide for his own, and especially members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So I think when we read that, we think relatives, you're thinking aunts, uncles, cousins, yeah? And then I think when we're thinking family, like the especially part, that's nuclear family. It's actually broader than that. When it says that um, if anyone doesn't provide for his own, Paul's using intentionally indefinite language so as to basically say, hey, it's kind of your responsibility to provide for those who are in your circle. Is that a fair word to use? That we have kind of these social circles and so when it says relatives, it's not actually limited to people that, have, that share blood with you, but are actually built into those who you have the ability to help within your social network, social framework in that sense. That this responsibility actually extends beyond family. Are you getting it? That there are some friends and some relationships and, and they are family. Right? I can think of people in my head right now that go to this church that are basically like family to me. Like in a second, my house, right? You have that person in your head? I think that's who this is talking about. And it's indefinite in such a way where it has to be determined based on the wisdom of the relationship and situation. But if we aren't providing for them, and then especially, now he does go in and say, especially members of his household, and that is implying family, then you are guilty not of one thing, but of two things, he says. Right? He says you are guilty of denying the faith. Like, whew, that's intense. And you're worse than an unbeliever. It's not just that you've denied the faith. It's also that you're worse than an unbeliever. In denying the faith... He's not talking about the same kind of denying the faith as someone who would walk into theological apostasy and kind of walk off the reservation of Christian doctrine. Rather, what he's saying is that doctrine, true sound doctrine, manifests itself in duty. When you're not exercising that duty, you are denying the faith. That the Christian faith, to truly say you're living it, goes beyond just like um, saying you're Christian, Right? It goes beyond even saying, I believe in Jesus. I believe he's God. I believe he died on the cross for sin, maybe even for my sin. It, it goes beyond that. The true Christian life, the one who has turned from their sin and put their faith in Jesus and has been regenerated, become a new creation, eyes now seeing the glory of Jesus, a heart now understanding the love of God for them, they are changed from the inside out that you have this natural, now call it supernatural, but to you all of a sudden it becomes this natural desire to want to care for the least of these. And when that's missing, for people as close as your own and members of your own family, he can say you've denied the faith. This is functional paganism, right? To not care for your own. But worse, 
The most central fruit in the Christian life is love. That's missing. You could call this the sin of omission. Most of the time when we understand sin, it's things that we do. But what about the things that we ought to do that we don't? And James 4 would go in and talk about that. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it's sin. Jesus actually even had this situation come up in Matthew 15 when he was dealing with the Jews and the Jews knew that they had a responsibility to honor their father and mother, but they kind of developed this tradition. Do you remember the Corbin story? They had developed this tradition and you see it play out because Jesus attacks that whole problem. The Jews are mad because Jesus' disciples aren't washing their hands according to the tradition of the elders. And Jesus was like, you're mad at that, and I'm mad at you because somehow you are using other things to deny obeying the commandments of God. And so he jumps in and he says, I'll show you how. You've developed this whole thing that if you had money, you could say it was devoted to God, and thereby saying that when the parents you have had a need, instead of ponying up and giving them that money, you could say, you know what, I wish I could sorry parents, I'm too godly to take care of you right now. I'm working on what the Lord wants me to take care of. All this cash that could benefit you is Corbin, devoted to God. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, you've taken this little schemey tradition and you've used it as a way to get yourself out of obeying the fifth commandment to honor your father and your mother. And so that Jews... And I think even ourselves can have this proclivity to sort of play games and sort of try to get around the commands of the Lord. You can look spiritual, but if you aren't providing for your own and you aren't providing for your family, you have denied the faith. And then he says, and you're worse than an unbeliever. And what's he implying there? He's implying that it's coming from a Christian who should know better, right? (laughs) We know the gospel. We know the love of God. We have seen Christ's example. We, We have no excuse. Listen, even unbelievers take care of their own. Have you seen it? Do you have friends that are non-Christians? They take care of their own. If we can't rise to the level of being saved by, our, by grace through faith in Jesus from our sin, raised to newness of life with an inner disposition to not only love the things of God, but pursue the things of God, and we don't, with the power of the Holy Spirit, walking in the freedom and newness of life, death over the power of sin in our lives then yeah, if you can't rise to the level of an unbeliever, then you are worse than an unbeliever. Even unbelievers know to take care of their own. This is a serious indictment against those who would claim to be Christian and not care for their own. You say, well, you don't understand. I'm so burdened. There's so much going on. Galatians 6 says we ought to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If, we, if we're Christians and we know, listen, we, <laughs> every Christian is so undeserving of God's grace. And every Christian has been lavishly doused with the grace of God through Jesus Christ. 
Every Christian story is we are sinners to the core. We are selfish beyond belief. We were not seeking God nor interested in God, and God came after us. This transformation of God seeking after us and providing for us the sacrifice that we needed, the perfect sinless son of God to die in our place for our sin because of the penalty of sin as our substitute in order to set us free from and pay the penalty of our sin so that by the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, He might cause us to come to life, a new life, where we see the glory of Jesus Christ. We see that before we ever loved God, God loved us. And now we live our lives to make much of Jesus Christ and to live with the kind of lavish generosity that God in Christ has doused us with. If we don't live up to that, Paul's like, I'm putting you in a category that's rough. Jesus' own example on the cross, he speaks to what? Two individuals on the cross? Am I right on that? One's the guy also on a cross. But in John 19, it's such a weird part. He says, woman, behold your son. You remember that? Like, what's going on? Jesus is agonizingly dying on a cross and what he has in his mind is that John would take care of his mom who is a widow. Two things on the cross. That's Jesus' heart. His own pain, so overwhelming. (laughs) He could have been focused on that the whole time and he's worried about his mom when he goes. Praise God, he wouldn't go for long. This is the heart of Jesus. This has got to be our heart. But there are situations, uh, familial breakdowns, people that are left with no one, then what? Then what happens? Where's the net to catch those individuals? Where's the net to catch those widows? Well, that's where the church comes in. Number three, here's the guide. Church, true widows, are our responsibility. Okay, true widows are our responsibility. That's you and me. Where does it start? Church, it starts with you understanding as individuals that widowed family members in your own household are your responsibility. And if you deny this, you deny the faith. Pretty strong warning. For those who get through, though, True widows are our responsibility. Not every widow. Not every widow. Every widow that we see or come across as Christians is a may care for, and it would certainly reflect the heart of God to care for a widow, but that there is a certain kind of widow that we must care for becomes clear in the text. So let's look at it. Here's the command, and it is a command. It says, honor widows who are truly widows. There we have the same verb from the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother, boom, it's right there. Honor widows who are truly widows. The word as we would understand it in our context typically means a woman whose husband is dead, correct? When we understand the word widow. 
But the word in the original language is actually not limited to just that circumstance. In fact, I think even a better textual definition of the word widow comes in verse 5 when he explains what a true widow is. She who is truly a widow, look at that, verse 5, left all alone. That's really the definition of this individual. This is one who has been left all alone. The word, word means bereft. It carries the idea of being alone or having suffered loss, and it doesn't speak into how a woman got into the situation. It simply describes the situation itself. She's left alone. How did it happen? We don't know. Death of husband? Maybe. Likely. Could it be desertion? Sure. You think there were some Christians in the first century practicing polygamy, get saved, and then figure out what to do and think the godly response is to shed a bunch of their wives? Imprisonment? Sure. And because of those things, whether death or desertion or imprisonment or whatever it may be, they were in serious need as a result with no family or close relative to help. Paul says, Paul commands Timothy himself. This is in the singular. Timothy, honor widows who are truly widows. He's telling the pastor, here pastor is the responsibility. And pastor is supposed to relay that to the church. It's not to say the pastor is exempt, he's just part of the hour. Hey guys, here's the command, we gotta take care of those who are truly widows. The word honor there, if we were to refer back to the Corbin illustration in Matthew 15, seems to imply that when we say honor, we don't merely mean respect. There's practicality in honoring your, that's what Jesus was saying, right? He's saying it was more than, so sometimes if you're like, hey, I honor my parents. I don't cuss at them to their face. We're good. We're cordial. We endured Christmas. Everything is okay. So yeah, respect them. You're like, Meh, I don't think that's it. And it certainly has more of a, of a financial implication in light of the fact that when the Jews were pulling the Corbin tradition play, Jesus was like, you're finding a way to not obey the fifth commandment, which implies that part of honoring your father and mother in the stage when they're in need is to say you ought to financially support them. You're like, ooh. Does it have to be in my house? What about those eschaton things? <laughs> I mean, I'll pay. I'd pay extra for that. I'm not even going to get into that right now on the wisdom of those things, but it does mean we ought to have an understanding that the responsibility is we care for the ones who can't care for themselves. And Paul says there's going to be some true widows, not every widow, not that we're just giving support away indiscriminately. That's what you have to hear as well. Sometimes people come in and go, church, you need to support. How dare you not support them? They're a widow. All widows are a may, some widows are a must. Does that make sense? All widows are a may, some are a must. All widows are a may, some are a mandate, okay? It doesn't say every widow, it says true widows, okay? So, so don't also hear me saying, the church doesn't take care of non-Christian widows. That's not what I'm saying. What am I saying? All widows are a? Certain widows are a? Okay, great. So let's figure out what the musts are. Church, number four, let's define this by specific qualifications. Two qualifications that we determine how to care for 
the kind of widows that the Lord has entrusted us to care for, the mandated kind, not the must, not the may kind, the must kind. Did I say that right? Thank you. Dave Barry's got me. Every once in a while, I get in my head up here and I say wrong names last, like last week, called David Paul. He gives the definition. So he says, honor widows who are truly widows. But first, remember that? That's the first line of defense. Let them show godliness to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. But then he gives us in verse 5 the definition of a true widow. She who is truly a widow, not awesome, we're like, I wonder what a true widow is. Just keep reading the Bible. It's amazing how many people will like open their Bible and be like, oh yeah, pastor, what about this? And you're like, oh, keep reading. <laughs> and they think they've like stumped you. Just, it's in the context. Just so anytime somebody does that, I feel like that used to happen in college, like dorms a lot, right? You get into this like intense philosophical conversation, you're all studying for finals, all of a sudden like you're sharing the gospel with eight people and, uh, and they're trying to like stump you on something they've heard obscurely on the history channel or whatever and it's like, honestly, if you freak out when they've stumped you, just keep reading the passage a little bit. First of all, it gives you ability to collect your thoughts and second of all, it's usually answered in the text. But I digress, that was free, you're welcome. Okay. <laughs> So, um, we got to define this by specific qualifications. Here's the first one. Uh, they're left all alone. It's right there in the text. She who is truly a widow, you got to be really, truly left all alone. The tense of the verb here, left, is a perfect verb. doesn't matter in the sense that I'm trying to wow you with Greek, but what I am trying to imply is what Paul's saying is they're in a continual or permanent position of being forsaken, Okay. So you're having to assess that by wisdom. Is this person in a continual position of being forsaken? See, so not every widow is truly a, a, a widow in the sense that the church has a mandated responsibility because some widows had family or relatives to take care of them. And what's the first line of defense? Okay, you're a widow. You got family? Great, go with them. Okay? Well, other widows would have had maybe some means left to them. Did you, were you married to someone wealthy? Did you inherit something? You were given money, great. You can pay for yourself, praise God, let's do that. Maybe the situation is they had an opportunity availed to them. Obviously in the first century, working, employment, those kind of things for a woman in the first century, much more difficult than today. However, today in particular, those things uh, have obviously changed quite a bit. So if there's some way to avail themselves of opportunity to make income, to make a living, those are things that would take them out of the conversation of being left alone. The church is to care for the ones with no means of support, who have no other source of income, and no family around them to take care of them, or even the relatives component, right? Nobody in their circle in that sense. They're really destitute. They're really alone. That's who the church is responsible as a body to care for. Yes, it's given to Timothy, but it's responsible for the whole church. So they got to be left all alone in that sense. And here's the second thing. They have to be leaning wholly into the Lord. Okay? They have to be leaning wholly into the Lord. They have to have set their hope on God. The true widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God. I love this too. Ready for this? The left all alone is in the same tense as the has set her hope on God, which is to say that for every moment there's been a continual position of forsakenness in their life, they've held a continual attitude of hope in the Lord. Isn't that awesome? 
like Anna in Luke 2, like the persistent widow in Luke 18. You remember that? We always look at that from the prayer side, but how about from the widow's side? Pleading over and over and over and over again with a harsh judge. You think God won't give justice to his elect? The harsh judge is doing it with the annoying widow. And why was she doing that? Well, probably because she got some stuff taken from her that was unjust, and she was pleading with the judge to do what was right. And she was, he was going to blow her off unless she had what? Kept coming and coming and coming. And just to get you off my back, I'll give you what you want, right? This person has set her hope on the Lord, continues in supplications and prayers night and day. She is spiritually alive. She is a Christian. One of the ways you could define this is like, hey, what are the definitions for the church's uh, responsibility, the mandated ones, the ones that are left all alone and love the Lord, right? That's really what it is. That are clearly Christians that are trusting the Lord to provide however he sees fit to do that. They aren't using their bodies to kind of flaunt and flirt, right? With whatever they got left, they're kind of working it. To figure that out, that's not their responsibility. That's not what they're trusting in. They're trusting in the Lord to figure out how to take care of them. They're totally leaning into him and trusting him for his care and his provision. Now, I want to make sure this is clear. The idea isn't that we set this criteria up and some widow's like, oh, please. And we're like, I'm sorry. Um, We've got to figure out if you're truly left alone or not. And that's going to take at least a year. And then, um, yeah, I'm going to really see if you love the Lord. Are you praying every day and night? I hope you're not getting that from me. That's not the implication. These are the qualifications for who we're responsible for, but here's how it should play out. Instead of saying there's a criteria that we make women, and could you imagine in that state as a widow? Oh, just another burden in their life. Well, we would help you, but no, it's not like that. It's not saying, hey, set this criteria and you must meet this bar. No, the idea is to identify the kind of woman who's already doing this and support her. In in other words, it should already be evident in the church. They're involved, they're immersed, they're praying, they're active, they're loving the Lord in a body. We see them, we're like, this is a no-brainer. They don't have anyone to take care of them. We're right alongside you, and we come alongside to support this individual. This is what we have to do. This is who we need to be identifying. Sadly, what happens in these situations is it's a lot of like early new timers, but these should be people that are immersed in the life of the church. That's why it's so important to be a part of a body who gets to come along one uh, one another and minister to each other. We see how important this is that they love the Lord, that it's clear that they're immersed, continuing in prayers and supplications night and day. This person's solid, y'all. And then it's contrasted, just to make sure we understand who's involved here, it says, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Live physically, but dead spiritually. How can you tell? Well, they don't depend on God. They live for themselves and not for God. They have plunged themselves into pleasure as a means of dealing with the hurt of their circumstance. And therefore, in doing it, they have taken the role of provider away from God, put it on their own shoulders, and decided, you know what? Because it's been rough and I deserve it, I'm going to indulge myself as well. 
And that's a pathway. But it's not the pathway that has claim on the church. Paul says, command these things. The church's witness is at stake. Command these things as well. What are these things? Verses 3 to verse 6. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. It's not to say it ends at verse 6, but it's just simply to say verse 7 is where it says command these things. What are these things? It's from verse 3 on. He's saying, listen, this is how it's supposed to run. What we've talked about today is how it's supposed to work. I'm supposed to command these things. So somebody would say, well, I used to go to a church where all they would, they would just do it. They didn't need to talk about it. Well, if the Bible's their authority, you need to do it and talk about it. You need a message on it for a whole 45 minutes. We just did it. Winning. Not because we're better than other places. Because this is what faithful ministers ought to do. This is what faithful churches ought to do. Ought to come around an understanding of this has to be in place and we need to be caring for these people. I think we can do better as a church. We got to command these things so that they may be without reproach. The church's witness needs to be there for individuals in our church representing the church and the church at large. We cannot be known for accusations that we don't take care of our own people. That's what he's saying. Because truly, it's an accurate and inaccurate representation of God. And so God's people must support their families, and we, as a people, collectively catch the rest of them. So we're going we're gonna to be reminded of that as we come to the table today, of the family component. And... Um, we truly do come to the table as believers who have not only been purchased out of a life of sin, out of the kingdom of darkness, but have been brought into something else, brought into a family, brought into a body, brought in to be among a people who instantaneously, not because of you doing anything special, but because of who you are in Christ, you're immediately immersed into the body. And then we together celebrate the hope that we have in the gospel, the hope for our future meal with the Lord Jesus, but also the confidence and assurance that is ongoing that we who are in Christ have a place to come for forgiveness in the blood shed and body laid on a cross for us in the personal work of Jesus, but also for us who are struggling in um, discouragement, maybe this text, there's something that hits home and you're like, man, I haven't been doing what I should be doing and I want to honor Christ and I haven't been honoring Christ and you can live in this guilt and shame. But here's the thing, the guilt and shame walks away when you remind yourself of the cross, when you commune with the Lord's people and recognize the fact that everything you need to do what God's called you to do, he empowers you in and through the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit through his word. He gives you leading, he gives you clarity. And all of that condemnation taken away through the blood shed and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so it's always good to come back to the table regularly and be reminded of that. So what we're gonna do is we think over and I wanna encourage you to examine your own life even as it comes to taking care of family, and there's so many difficult relationships with family members, examine your own heart before you come and take of the elements. And then you'll take the double cup
and then you will go back to your seat and Pastor Ben will lead us in communion today as we celebrate the Lord Jesus Christ. But let me just encourage you, if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, give your life to Jesus. This does nothing for you. Repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is life-changing for you. Then come to the table. If you're a member in good standing at a church that believes the Bible, you're welcome to take communion with us. But let's assess our hearts, and when ready, let's come and grab the elements, and Pastor Ben will lead us to take it together.